Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're talking to Jess Phillips, the MP for Birmingham Yardley, elected in 2015 and one of the most interesting and outspoken members of Parliament. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I spoke to Jess Phillips this weekend at the Cambridge Literary Festival, where she was here to talk about Brexit, and we get onto that a bit later in the conversation. We were in a slightly echoey room in St John's College, and you might hear a few people on the street outside. She was here to talk about Brexit, but I also wanted to talk to her about her book, which was published earlier this year. It's called Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth, and I think it is one of the most interesting, entertaining, thought-provoking politics books of 2017. It came out in February, so it came out before Weinstein, it came out before the recent wave of scandal that's gone through Westminster, so this is pre-Fallon. And I started by asking her whether anything had really changed since Weinstein, since Fallon. Is anything different about Westminster now? Nothing has physically changed, no policy has physically changed yet, but there is definitely a sea change, I think, in the way people feel, both from the side of the sort of people who might have perpetrated this behaviour, but also those who have tolerated it and those who have been bystanders to it. I think there's probably quite a lot of fear in the halls of Westminster at the moment. And from what I can see, actually, that fear doesn't stack up yet. There has been no scalping. You know, we haven't seen... Hollywood actually have done a much better job, in my opinion, of really, really drawing a very fine line. We're not going to let you in our films anymore. We're not going to buy things from you anymore. No more magazines from you. Whereas we are considerably more mealy-mouthed. And in your party, you've been quite vocal about Jeremy Corbyn and, and the attitude coming from not just him, but the people around him. You say in your book you have a line which is... The Labour Party takes women's issues very seriously and the way they signal it, this leadership, is that they bring men in because it's about rights and justice. And yeah. so that's how you show your series. Anything changed there in the last year? Have you got any different vibes from the Corbyn camp? Um, not especially, actually. I wouldn't say that there's been a massive change. I think that some of the people who are front and centre now in the Labour Party, who seemed to be... Whereas it was all Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn. And to be fair to him, that wasn't his fault. That's a war of attrition, that he was a figurehead on one side and their best asset, so no surprise. But as he's sort of bedded in and gone through the election, the other people's voices who come out, the likes of Angela Rayner, Emily Thornbury, make it less of a problem, to be honest, because they are both incredibly, just those two examples, strident feminists who would not allow anything to sort of happen that might be seen as being untoward to women. But I still think that men on the left, if I was honest, treat women much like men on the right do as people who have to have things done to them rather than done alongside them. This whole, oh, we know what's good for you. I'll tell you what's going to be brilliant for your people. It's just like, piss off. I'll tell you what's going to be brilliant for my people. 
Is it a generational thing? I mean, they are clearly from a world that is quite distant, and suddenly here they are running the show. Is there a sea change across the generations? No. I'm afraid to say there are enough young men who want to lecture me on what it's like to be a woman, as there are older men who want to lecture me on what it's like to be a woman. So, no, I'm, I'm afraid we still live in a patriarchy, and that is the dominant thing that comes across. You had a run-in with Diane Abbott, a famous run-in with Diane Abbott. How do you get on with her now? I don't actually ever talk to her, is the truth. I have no dealings with her, which is a real shame, actually. For both of us, she's, she heads up the department I am most involved with scrutinising, in actual fact, on the government's part, and so I, I am actually an asset to them. I know what I'm talking about in this area of work around domestic violence, sexual violence, human trafficking, policing. I've worked in it my whole life. So it's problematic, I think, that our relationship is broken down. But we're not, like, fighting in the uh, corridors or anything. We just we don't talk to each other. So one thing you and she have in common, of course, is that you have been on the receiving end of some horrific abuse. One of the things I loved about your book is you describe two worlds, the world you grew up in, in Birmingham, and the sort of experiences that propelled you to where you are now and then the world you live in now they're very different worlds but one of the ways in which they're different is that you grew up in a pre-social media world Mm. and now it's impossible to imagine politics without it so I'm going to ask this question in two parts how different do you think the growing up bit would have been in a sort of Facebook age because it is one of the massive Mm. challenges of being a young woman but a young person I mean we see it in Cambridge with the students that we have here it can consume your life do you think that part of your story would have been different if it had been in the social media age? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, it would have been different because I didn't have a clean, pure childhood as a teenager. Although, to be fair, I've never, ever hidden that. So there is a difference in talking about something in retrospect because you can couch it in your terms as the sort of ugly nature of how that can appear when it manifests in reality. So, yeah, there would have been probably pictures of me dancing at raves, you know, off my face with endless different boys, and that is the reality of my life. I have seen some horrendous things. I can now tell that story on my terms, but... The trouble with social media being used as a scrutinising tool for politicians or for anyone in any profession is that you don't get any context, any proper context, and people can cherry-pick. If Facebook had existed when I was 13 years old, you could easily cherry-pick something to say that I was totally and wildly inappropriate to be a Member of Parliament. The trouble is, I think, actually, that it is changing now, and you can not be a stuff shirt and be a politician. And I think that social media is doing some of that because it does actually humanise us on the other side as well. I can sit and talk about Strictly on Twitter and people will be like, oh, Jess, you're so normal. Um, So it's a double-edged sword in that regard. But I really worry about young people exposing too much of their lives, certainly my own children, exposing too much of their lives online because of the ramifications of what will happen in the future. Because you also describe, you know, when you were growing up, you went for it. You like, you, you believe life was there for the taking, but it it can, it can have a kind of chilling effect. You see it as well on young people, not because they want to be politicians and they think, mm. oh God, if I do this, but just because people are watching, right? It's just that feeling that 
you're not going to be scrutinised in future by the Daily Mail. You're going to be scrutinised now by your friends. Yeah. And it changes the way people think about what's possible. It definitely does. I'm definitely much funnier on social media than I'm in real life. I'm fairly dull in real life. And that is purposeful. It is designed. I want to be the funniest person on Twitter making the best slight. It is amazing how Instagram makes young women think even more than they did when I was young and sort of anorexia and things like that were huge when I was a kid I'm not sure that we've come anywhere near solving that issue but Instagram is like the art of perfection that just doesn't exist in real life and the idea that people are watching us is tantalising to everybody and I think anyone who says that they don't want to be well known for being beautiful clever funny witty the best writer the best dancer the best singer the best podcaster you know people want to be recognized for what they do and those little hits those likes those retweets it's like a drug it's like genuinely like an addictive drug and I think it probably skews the way that people are behaving and relationships are forming having said that that's the negative. I have met so many people I would never have met. People from a completely different walk of life to me, like so wildly different through social media. And so for every negative, there is a positive, but we're just learning how to balance that out in a world of dissent at the moment. And how has it changed politics, do you think? Because the other side of it is your entire political life has been lived in this world, yeah. the post-Twitter, post Facebook world and politics is full of people who already want attention. Yeah. Uh, I think. It certainly is. Can you imagine what it was like before? Obviously, there are some MPs who've crossed that, but it's really hard to remember what politics was like before it was lived yeah. in this way. Yeah, I mean, I think that those who came before probably still do live it a little bit like they used to. So if I think of Ken Clark, he doesn't even own a, telef- a mobile telephone. And he's still somehow as relevant today yeah. as he ever was. And he's a big beast in Parliament, but also a big beast in public. He's well-known across generations. So there is an element that maybe it's, it's all Emperor's New Clothes and politics is cyclical and it will just go back to being exactly as it was. I think it has changed, for me, the people feel that they can trust me because I am like them, and that has got across through social media because, you know, I do washing apparently, that people think that that MPs before the uh, age of Twitter didn't wash, it seems. But there we go, it's shocking. But the the other problem is is that I'm never allowed to be off work. I'm never allowed to stop. So if somebody sends me something... I mean, most people are very polite, but it's immediately like, why haven't you responded? It's like, because it's fucking Sunday. Do you know what I mean? I also am a human being who has a family and I try not to work on Sundays until my kids are in bed. And today I have broken that rule, clearly. But the immediacy of it is horrible and the expectation that it breeds. I think we need to manage our expectations better because I'm only one person. can't do everything. So there are other people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's someone that you know mm-hmm. a bit now. Yeah, yeah. I know him And he negotiates that quite skillfully. He's the Ken Clark. But not, if you know what I mean, in that he's the outlier, but he's playing that game. Parliament is full of these people who really struggle with this world. But do you think, even for the Jacob Rees-Mogg's, there's an opportunity here for... He can can drive this image through this social media in a way that wasn't possible before. Is is his rise predicated on this? Definitely. um, I mean, he's only really sort of adopted social media use himself 
very, very recently. And anyone who has ever looked at what he did on Instagram over the election, which was genuinely, hilariously funny. The tattoo parlour. I mean, that was so funny. It was total genius. Like, him and his little son will take our business elsewhere. It is everything we think about him, but it is him poking fun at himself. And I think that a level of self-awareness is very, very rare in politics, actually. And if you can be a bit self-aware, that makes you very popular. But I think that, absolutely, it will be part of his rise. What I notice about Labour politicians at the moment, and I find it actually slightly irritating because it's no more genuine than just a leaflet or a pamphlet or a newspaper article, is there's all this video, talking heads. You know, everybody has to have a talking head moment. And definitely PMQs has become an opportunity for a 30-second video that will go on Facebook. It is literally changing the manifestation of the way politicians behave in the to and fro of politics. I don't think government or opposition because opposition is a function of our government, it is a check and balance on what is happening in our country, should be driven by 30-second videos on Facebook. It should be driven by the agenda, what matters to the people in the world, not likes and retweets. And then I, I see very little actual legislative work going into what is being said in the 30-second video. It is like when politicians hold up a sign and say, yes, I really care about water, then move on to the next room and hold up the sign that says, yes, I really care about breast cancer and and so on and so on. I worry that politics is becoming a frippery and definitely people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, the sort of joke of that frippery is that somebody like him, who I have to say, having actually asked him the question directly to his face, does not want to be the leader of the Conservative Party... But, you know, a joke goes around the world and the whole world laughs and then Donald Trump ends up being the president. So it is so easy to manipulate politics now because it's all about likes and retweets and that is worrying. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We talked to David Miliband on this podcast a few weeks ago, and so he, you know, obviously has moved from politics to running an NGO. I asked him the question, how is that trade-off for you? And he made it clear that politics is still where the action is. But you've done it the other way. You work for Women's Aid. You were very heavily involved in the issues directly on the ground. And now you're a backbench MP, and you've had successes, campaigning successes. But that world you described, the 30-minute soundbite world, do you have any regrets? Do you have any sense that you've traded something where you could really make a difference for something where maybe you can't? Uh, yes, I absolutely. I feel sort of completely the opposite to David Miliband. I feel like he is in a position that is so enviable, actually. I mean, he got that job because of who he was, is the truth of the matter. And that is so enviable. What an absolute privilege 
to really be able to change people's lives. And I feel that in lots of ways when I was working at Women's Aid, working with local councils, I could literally see the change as it was happening. A change in policy, changing the number of people in refuge is brilliant when you see it happening. Now, I do it on a much bigger scale now, and the wins... I feel like actually genuinely cartwheeling naked around Parliament sometimes in a sort of total frenzied, I can't believe we got this one through. The winds are so high, but ultimately, in terms of policy change, it's very, very difficult to affect it, and I affected it as much, to be honest, when I worked at an NGO. I was in the Home Office just as much as I am now. I was in the Ministry of Justice just as much as I am now. It's like a sort of gag for the civil servants. They're like, oh, you know, we now have to pretend we don't agree with you, whereas before we used to bring you in to ask you what we should be doing. It's the same civil servants. I'm sat in the same meeting rooms. So the only thing I think that is different, is better, is that I have an enormous mouthpiece now and I have taken every advantage of using that. And so people listen and the government is more frightened of me than it was before. Because people will listen. If you were to put me in a room with Theresa May, people would believe that I knew what I was talking about on the issues of domestic violence, sexual violence, sexual harassment. And they would consider what she was saying, if she didn't agree with me, to be wrong. And I think that that is an enviable position, but that is built because of the work I did at the NGO, not the other way around. And how much of what you're doing now is waiting for a Labour government? I mean, do you think that you would feel differently about this if your party were in power? Or is it... The way that Parliament is set up that, that drives it. Yeah, I think it's the way that Parliament is set up that drives it. But I would, I would have to lobby for my own side. I'd have to lobby considerably less, I think, to be perfectly honest. They'd be happier with the money spending, is definitely true. But I would still have to be making the same arguments, sitting in the same rooms with the same civil servants, making the case that these things needed to happen, that this was the way it had to be done. It isn't a sort of Labour-Tory divide. I would still be lobbying and still be shouting and still be showing up people who didn't agree with me. So we were joking just now that we're in Cambridge, a town where if you need someone, you shout Julian, and the chances are that person will wave back. And you've got this great line in your book, which is... And it's not just about MPs, it's the people who work for them, right, in Portcullis House, their advisors and so on. And if you don't know who you're going to meet, if you shout, Will, Tom, Ben, the chances are you'll get the one. You'll get... You'll definitely... You'd get a a slew of people, if I'm honest. So it's really... It's not diverse. As you say, it's not the world you recognise because it's not the country. It's very male, it's very white. So one feature of that is, and this is a roundabout way of getting to the Brexit question, it's also not diverse in that it's overwhelmingly now university graduates. I mean, it's one of the features of Parliament. I mean, that's the one way in which actually it's gone in a different direction. It used to have people who hadn't been to university. And now we know that that's one of the big social divides in our country. It was the big social divide with Brexit. Age and whether or not you went to university were bigger indicators, certainly than gender, because it looked like it was fairly mixed. But even things like party affiliation, I have no idea what the answer is. But that's an issue too, right, that there's a big portion of the country who are not represented in Parliament because basically these days to become an MP, not exclusively, but almost exclusively, you have to have gone to university. What's the way around that one? I think you're right. I think that that has definitely changed, although there are some notable exceptions. Angela Rayner being the most obvious one. uh, Didn't even... And Jeremy. And Jeremy, of course, yeah. He did go, didn't he? Yeah, and then he fell out of over politics. Yeah. So, yeah, there are notable examples. On the Tory side, John Major, he didn't go to university, did he? But I think the, the best marker, actually, of class now 
is whether your parents went to university or you, in fact, go to university, because a lot of the markers of class that we used to have, of social class, don't stack up so much anymore. And I think it is a worry if those people aren't being represented. What is more, people are sort of talked down to those people. And the Brexit thing, I mean, I got really, really, really annoyed with people from the South, largely, and with houses with names rather than numbers, which is not something I recognise to be a thing, had a go at me about Brexit and about triggering of Article 50, while thousands and thousands of my constituents emailed me to say, don't stand in the way of the thing that we voted for. So there is this idea that those people are stupid, that definitely has meant that they voted for Brexit, because being called stupid, being treated like you don't matter, like your needs don't matter, like your fears about immigration don't matter, by a load of liberal elites somewhere, is bound to make you vote in a referendum that what you saw on the ballot said, do you hate politics this much or do you really, really hate it? So we've definitely got to do something about that. I don't think it's necessarily that we've got to get as many people who didn't go to university as possible, that we need to have positive discrimination for the non-graduates. But we definitely need to be doing more to widen the field of people who didn't go. I mean, my husband didn't go to university and... This idea that that you end up earning so much more money if you're a graduate, which is definitely what you buy into. I think that people with a trade actually are going to be better off in this bold future of automation. I could probably easily be replaced with a robot, but it would be harder to replace my husband. So I think that we haven't got that right. And it is odd that so many people went to university and that that has changed. It's just like everybody went to bloody university under Blair, though. That's how it felt to me. It felt like everybody around me, no matter which social... I mean, my husband went, and he definitely shouldn't have, and he fell out with them and left. But, yeah, it was just this idea that that is the route, that technical education no longer mattered. And that's terrible snobbery. Because that also, I think, is the other big divide, is the generation divide. And, again, it's the thing that connects people who voted for Brexit in the South who own their own homes and they're over 65, and is they didn't go to university, and then a lot of people young people in the north who feel you know, left behind. as it, They didn't go to university either, but the hope is that this Blair generation where everyone went to university mm. coming through will sort of shift the balance, but I, I, mean, I can't see it myself because for the reasons you said, there are going to be lots of losers in that generation too. Oh. I mean, the jobs, the, the houses are not going to be there. Definitely. I think that, you know, for my parents' generation, and they were born in council houses but were the respectable working class, I suppose. They finished school, they walked straight into a job. Now, I I finished school and university in the Blair years. It pretty much wasn't that hard to get a job. Now, my children, they've got no blinking hope, have they? It's It's much, much harder for them to get a job. Now, it won't be for them because they're the kids of an MP and I'm bright enough to recognise that they'll probably have it easy. Had I not become an MP, it wouldn't be like that for them necessarily but the house buying thing is a phenomenal generational divide it's phenomenal that that my children will ever own a home is not something that I I can foresee actually them ever being able to not until I'm dead and so the problem of inherited wealth continues and that is a you know a real 
concern that I don't think that people in Westminster understand at all, at all. Do you think our politics can cope with this? Because there are real strains. I mean, Brexit, maybe Brexit was a bit of a one-off, but it's also a symptom of a system... And it's partly the electoral system. I think it's first past the post. It's the party system. The party system's under real strain. But there must be a possibility that this way we've done politics for 30, 40, 50 years can't cope with these kinds of social tensions. It's not going to lead to violence in the streets, I don't think. Well, you're looking at me sceptically. I mean, who knows? But there must be a possibility that it cannot deal with the problems that it faces. It's whether it can or cannot, actually, I don't think is the debate. It's not going to, in my opinion. I think democracy is more at risk now in both the lifetime of myself and, I'd say, my parents' generation than it ever has been since the World well, War. I mean, people like me, who were born in like the 70s and 80s, think that this is the way it is. Mm. We are so arrogant and so short-sighted and blinkered to think that in liberal democracies that this is the default position a liberal democracy that we have had in fact only for like 70 years since the war is not the default position of civilizations and democracy if you look at what's happening in germany with fascists in the parliament for the first time with them not being able to broker an agreement actually the rise of fascism in France, a country so egalitarian that their socialism makes ours look puny, but actual fascism was given a stronghold there. Hungary, it is one. In Europe, we are seeing a crisis in liberal democracy, and the fact that our politics hasn't coped and that dissent is their current end goal for most people, without a vision beyond what that dissent will mean, is a real worry to me. There's all sorts of surveys being done about young people getting involved, and actually it shows that young people are getting more involved in politics, but that actually they're not sure that democracy is the answer. That is terrifying, and I hear it in my liberal little world where some people are also called Julian in this enclave of Birmingham that I live in where on the school run, somebody turned around to me whilst eating a croissant. I mean, it's literally the most cliched thing ever, eating a croissant and drinking a cup of tea and said, just not sure about democracy, don't think it's the right solution. And I just thought, this is... I believe so fiercely in parliamentary democracy. It has been degraded and degraded and degraded and degraded for so long and derided that I am genuinely worried that dissent will lead to an authoritarianism, even in this country. In this little liberal enclave, you hear it too, partly post-Brexit, it's that sort of, if if that's democracy, we don't want it. But also you get these very smart, technocratic people who go to China, and then they come back and they go, wow, it's amazing, because they can do all this stuff there, they don't have to debate it or discuss it. You know, If they want a greener city, they just do it. They don't have to ask the... It's funny because they haven't got greener cities, have they? (laughs) But you want to say to these people, but, but, but. So there's that mixture of the sort of frustration of the people who feel that the system's not working for them and then the elites who are frustrated that the system isn't enabling them to sort of Mm. just do stuff quickly. I mean, that to me is the sort of pincer movement here. Got angry people at one end and then you've got these sort of technocratic elites who could also give up on it. Oh, definitely. I sound like a lunatic. I recognise that I sound like a lunatic... 
if it's not in my lifetime, it will be in my children's. I expect to see the dissent that we feel brewing now, and I feel it all the time, I expect it to spill into something more dangerous, whether that's violence in the streets. We already have violence in our streets. Our democracy is already turned violent. My friend was murdered in an anti-democratic moment. It was about a slight on democracy. You know, we're seeing journalists murdered around the world for reporting on this stuff. Plutonium on umbrellas wasn't that long ago. It is a worry. And the brilliant thing is, is that the way that it is being done slowly, slowly, drip-fed dissent, and the elites, you Donald Trumps, saying basically the same thing as your working-class white man, is clever, it's clever, and it's been designed to cause this dissent because we in our liberal democracies like America, like Europe, we have to think we asked for it. We have to think that we were the ones who said, yeah, we don't want this democracy anymore because we're too advanced in that state of mind. And at the moment, we are basically retweeting away our liberty. And I see it happening and I am terrified. Let's not end on too bleak a note. So you've been an MP for two and a bit years now. Uh, You've won two elections. You're now in a pretty safe seat, I think. Um, So you can think about the future. What do you want to do over the next few years, this parliament, the next parliament? If if it's as bleak as that, what are the things you, me, any of us can do to make a difference? It, It is solvable, is the truth. And it is solvable through the means of democracy and genuinely trying to understand and being much, much more responsive to the public. The divide currently is a load of bloody people who get elected and think that they know everything about everything and then a load of people who they're meant to be serving who feel completely forgotten. There is a way of genuinely levelling out that balance by all sorts of different mechanisms, whether it's devolution in some part, although that's very sort of poindextery, isn't it? You know, like like the people where I live are going, do you know what, we want more local government devolution. They're really not saying that. Um, But we have to be believable as politicians. We have to. My quest, if I achieve anything by tweeting about Strictly, it is entirely to make people believe that politics is like them. It is about them. It is for them. Because if we reconnect with people properly and listen to them and also be honest and explain to them that you can't always get what you want, that expectation management, making difficult decisions, being bold and brave politicians and telling them when we're going to disappoint them and saying, look, we're never going to disappoint you. You're going to have to live with it. It's like being a parent, isn't it? I know. It's very disappointing that we can't, I'm not going to let you eat ice cream before dinner, but it isn't good for you. We need some inspiring voices. We need some people who really feel like they give a toss and they didn't just gravitate towards that job because of the university degree that they did. It can be solved, but politics has to be believed in first. And at the moment, it is doing a crappy job of that. I usually end these things by suggesting that you follow us on Twitter. You should follow Jess Phillips too. She is very funny. Her book is Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth. We will tweet the link to it. 
On Twitter, we are at tppodcast underscore. And if you've got the time, do please rate us on iTunes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.